All right. Uh, I don't know if you took driver's ed. How many of you took driver's ed when you were young? All right. And you may date yourself here. Uh, did you take driver's ed uh, when you actually had to test driving with a state trooper? I don't even know if they do that in Colorado. In Texas, when I grew up, you had to finish driver's ed, which was a class in school, and then to get your license, your parents, your mom or dad, had to drive you to uh, the, highway, the highway patrol office, and then you had to do like basically a perp walk into the highway patrol, and then you had to get in the car with a state trooper who's wearing a sidearm, and and drive to pass your test, and they don't do that anymore. I'm not sure what the reasons are behind that or none of my kids experienced that trauma. Uh, but in driver's ed, one of the things you're taught early on uh, is about the importance of understanding where your blind spots are, okay? Blind spots are those places in the car where there's some kind of obstruction that your car may be causing that uh, blocks your view from what might be there as a potential threat. So uh, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about blind spots. The Webster's de uh, Dictionary definition is uh, a portion of a field that cannot be seen or inspected with available equipment. So your mirrors don't work. There's just, there's just something there, and you've got to know that there could be something, a person or another vehicle, especially a motorcycle, in that spot. Uh, a blind spot also refers to a part of the eye. Homage over here. Uh, it's called the optic disc. Uh, the small circular area at the back of the retina where the optic nerve enters the eyeball, which is devoid of rods and cones so that it is not sensitive to light. And then one other definition you'll find in Webster's regarding blind spots is that it's an area in which one fails to exercise judgment or discrimination. The concern before us this morning is something greater than just operating uh, a motor vehicle safely, although uh, that is important. Rather, uh, it's about the ability to see things spiritually clear, to see things clearly, to understand, uh, and then to live our lives uh, in, uh, with correct judgment in light of what we understand. And this is, as we see, uh, have been seeing uh, coming in the Gospel of Mark, no small challenge because spiritual blindness is one of the most dev devastating effects of sin. One of the greatest byproducts of our sin nature uh, is that it uh, confuses what we think we see. It, it blinds us not only to things we see in the world, but more importantly, uh, to spiritual things. You might think of it this way. God has created human beings with, with two sets of eyes, two vision systems. Uh, one is our ability to see things clearly in the physical world, and if we have healthy eyes or reasonably healthy, uh, then we can make our way around without bumping into things. And then the other uh, is a spiritual set of eyes, something that we see uh, realities that, do not ex that exist beyond the plane or the world that we live in, uh, and we, we come to know as Christ followers, especially uh, as the Spirit guides us, to understand uh, a world that exists beyond this one, that we were meant for something more than just this one. The problem is, is that sin blinds us. Sin so blinds us that it blinds us to how blinded we actually are. And this passage that we look at today is, is really about this dynamic of spiritual blindness, about this idea of having blind spots, and every one of us has them. And so Jesus is often found saying, if you have eyes to see, see. But it's not quite that simple. And again, this is because we have a human nature, and our human nature is fallen. Now this is, issue is going to affect 
every single one of us, not just when our journey starts, but every day of, for the course of the rest of our lives, we have blind spots. And the only way we will recognize what's in the blind spots, what it is that God's trying to lead us to, is if we have discernment, spiritual eyes to recognize what is true. Now in this passage we're going to look at today, it's a, it's a fairly lengthy passage, uh, verses chapter 8, verse 1 through 26, so if you have your Bible, open to chapter 8. And what we're going to see is two kinds of spiritual blindness. And this is really important because uh, which type of spiritual blindness you have uh, not only has a lot to say about how you'll live this life, but about where you might wind up when this life is over. So one kind of spiritual blindness is temporary. Jesus is in the process of healing that. And the other is permanent and eternal. So just by way of setup, let me just lay out how this passage works. Uh, there are four sections that we're going to look at this morning. The first section really sets up, uh, is the setup event. Uh, and from this one section, uh, there are going to be three other sections that emerge. And they're all going to be Mark's way of driving home what Jesus was trying to teach, in particular, the disciples. Uh, the first section uh, uh, sets up the middle two sections. And then the fourth event summarizes the middle two sections. That's the way it works. So we'll wa work through each of these sections uh, to understand what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see. The middle two sections are about this thing called spiritual blindness, or as I've titled it, uh, the idea of blind spots. Now, a note about Mark's narrative before we jump in. Uh, we're coming to the end of the first segment of Mark's gospel. There are three, uh, there are three movements in Mark's gospel. Jesus' ministry in the area of Galilee is about to come to an end. He's fixing to take a hard shift away from Galilee as he sets his focus on getting to Jerusalem. And here uh, in the last few weeks, Mark has used uh, a, a repeated pattern uh, to work his way up to this shift. And that pattern looks like this. Uh, there's a, a miracle feeding, so the feeding of the 5,000, uh, and then that's followed by a confrontation with the Pharisees, and then that's followed by a healing that holds significance on, on what Mark is telling us about beyond the healing. Uh, and then finally, a confession about who Jesus is. So just by way of example, uh, we started with the, the feeding of the 5,000. This was Mark's, he began this pattern here. And immediately after that, he's confronted by the Pharisees about what it is that defiles a person. Is it something on the outside that goes in, or is it something on the inside that goes out? And Jesus uh, clearly uh, underscored that the problem humanity has is a problem on the inside. It comes from our heart. Uh, then that led to two miracles, uh, the healing of the Syrophoenician woman, she's a Gentile, this is significant, uh, and then second, last week we saw the healing of, of the blind mute uh, who couldn't hear and he couldn't see. And that led to the confession uh, of the Gentile crowd that, what G that Jesus did everything well. He even made the lame, uh, he even healed the lame, he gave sight to the blind, and he gave hearing to those who couldn't hear. Uh, and this was kind of a fulfillment of, of pro a prophecy in Isaiah. And that's significant because that crowd that was making that confession are not Jews. They're Gentiles. So Mark is about to walk through this pattern again by beginning with another feeding. Uh, and so as we work through the pattern, we'll see a feeding of the 4,000. That's going to be followed by a confrontation uh, or an interaction with the Pharisees, followed by a miracle. And then next week, we'll get to the confession. So uh, the bridge between this uh, pivot in Mark's gospel uh, is this passage right here. 
Jesus has been displaying his exousia, his power. That's the Greek word for power. It's not the only word for power. It's power that's innate. So Jesus is the only one who has exousia. You may have some power. You may go to the gym and work out. Uh, You may have some influence, but you don't have exousia. You weren't born with innate power like Jesus is. And so since the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been displaying his great power time and time again over the forces of nature, uh, over maladies. Uh, He's been healing people. He teaches with authority that no one ever has. And so despite all of that, the, the disciples are struggling to come to understand exactly who it is Jesus is. And so Mark, as he leads to this shift, which is going to turn us toward Jerusalem, he wants to underscore just how important it is for Jesus, from Jesus' perspective to, to get the disciples to understand why he came. So he begins the pattern uh, in Mark chapter 8, beginning uh, in verse 1. We're going to start there. In those days, uh, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples before the people, and they set them before the crowd." And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went uh, to the district of Dalumanatha. So Jesus, uh, here again, is in an opportunity where lots of people have gathered to him. Many are wanting to see him perform a miracle. Many are seeking healing. But they've been with him, this crowd, uh, for three days. And what's important about this particular feeding is that it's unique from the feeding of the 5,000. We we found out last week that Jesus is in the Decapolis. Uh, That's on the, uh, the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis means ten cities. And so Jesus has been in this Gentile area, and unlike when he fed the 5,000, now he has a crowd that's predominantly Gentile. And this is significant for the disciples to see, because he just told the Syrophoenician woman that the food or the bread has to go to the house of Israel first, and then the crumbs will fall to the Gentiles. So here Jesus has almost the same size of crowd as the first time, not, not as big, but he's going to demonstrate to the disciples that he's willing to take care of even the Gentiles. Now, what Jesus says uh, to the disciples is that uh, they have been with me. It's the Greek word remain uh, means that there's a special adherence or commitment to him. There was something about what he was saying, something about what he was doing that they just lingered on. And slowly, after three days camping out to be with Jesus, they slowly started running out of food. And they weren't close like the first miracle like the 5,000. They weren't close to towns where they could go and retrieve food. And what Jesus says to the disciples, very important. He looks at the crowd after three days and says, I have compassion on them. I have compassion on them. He saw the the predicament they were in. And this is a little different from the 5,000 because when he looked at the 5,000, he had compassion on them because they were leaderless. They had no king. As he looks at this Gentile crowd, it's not about them having a king. They have, they have a king, he's just not a good one. 
Uh, Jesus has compassion on them because he recognizes they're inaccessible uh, to the means of God's grace apart from the work that he has come to do. We're right to think that the gospel is primarily about the salvation of souls, and we dare not drift from that. That is the heart of why Jesus came. It's the heart of the message that our church must continually proclaim. But we distort the gospel if we think that Jesus looks at people as just disembodied souls. It's not the case. He cares about everything that befalls you. Every large thing, every small thing, everything that comes your way. Jesus, the creator, savior, has compassion for you. He cares about people. And that's one of the things that ought to enhearten us every time we come to Jesus is to know that somehow in a world full of billions of people, he cares about me. He cares about you. This is who God is. All throughout the Old Testament, we are reminded that God isn't a, a God of law. He's not an angry God. He's a compassionate God. Forgiving sins and transgressions for generation after generation. He longs to see his people come to him. God is the creator of your life. He knows exactly how your life operates. He knows you live in the utterly mundane. We all do. Our life takes place in, in little moments, and some of them are glorious, like yesterday. M most of them aren't. And he sees those moments. He created us for those moments. He cares about those details. He has compassion uh, in this passage, and he has compassion for his people. We're tempted to think that we ought not bother God with the small things. That's not who God is. God works sometimes especially in the small things, and he invites us to come to him. So Jesus sees this crowd of 4,000 Having been with him for three days, he's concerned that they have no food. He wants to do something about it, and he calls the disciples to him. This is a little a bit of a departure. He, he kind of sets things in motion here, whereas with the 5,000, he began with a question to the disciples. So he just wants to know from the disciples, uh, you know, I want, I want to take care. I want to feed these people. And the disciples are going to respond in a way that ought to be shocking to us. He, they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It hasn't been that long ago when Jesus took fishes and loaves, touched them, prayed over them, broke them, and fed not 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children after that. And somehow, the, the disciples have like spiritual amnesia. They, they have a blind spot. They don't recognize it like Jesus didn't like, he didn't like invest it all on that one occasion. He's like, well, I'm out now. I got no more, I got no more magic no, he, he, he's the one who can continually do uh, what is in the best interest of man. He's the one who can continually meet the needs uh, of you and I. He, he's, he, he lacks no resource. His exousia is unlimited. And yet when he puts before the disciples another opportunity for them to get it, they lack the ability to see that the same God who fed 5,000 can feed 4,000 or 10,000 or 100,000. Or millions. So Jesus uh, says to them, uh, Do you have, uh, I'm sorry, let me get to verse five. Uh, and he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So Jesus, though he's been displaying his miraculous working power, his exousia, the disciples just don't get it. That Jesus has been showing the disciples first and foremost, more than the people that have been players in the scene, who his, that uh, this is my character. 
This is my power. This is my work. You can rest in me. What should have been their response? What should be your response when you find yourself up against a wall? Well, if you really know Jesus, it should be, Lord, I trust you. I know that you've got this. This is nothing for you. It's a big deal to me. I lack the means to affect this. I can't change this, but I know you can. I trust you. I'm ready to serve you. That's what the disciples should have said, but they didn't. So verses uh, 5 through 10, continuing, he says, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down. He took the seven loaves. He blessed it, uh, took it, broke it, and then again provides the miracle of not only the bread, but the fishes. And he feeds everyone until they're satisfied. And it's interesting because another contrast between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is the prayer that Jesus prays. When he feeds the 5,000, which is a predominantly Jewish crowd, the Greek word there for the blessing is eulogen. It's the word we get our eulogy from. It's a prayer. But in this particular passage, the word that he uses when he prays the blessing over the prayer is eucharistane. It's where we get the word eucharist from. It's an allusion to what's going to happen one day when Jesus has laid his life down as a sacrifice for all people and he assembles a, 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 a family together of Gentiles and Jews of every nation, tribe, and tongue, all united in the Eucharist and the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood upon the cross. It's a beautiful picture of what, of what Mark is trying to convey that Jesus was showing the disciples. This isn't just for the Jews. It's for every man, woman, or child. Who can feed who can satisfy people in this desolate place? The answer is only Jesus Christ can satisfy people. What is it that you're looking for to satisfy you? Listen, we're all, we're all guilty because we all got blind spots. We're all searching for things through the course of life. It starts out really high-risk stuff because we're stupid when we're younger. We get more sophisticated as we get older. We learn how to hide it, but the truth is, we, we have hearts that are idle factories. We're constantly looking for something to satisfy us. The only thing that satisfies in this life or the next is Jesus Christ. Somehow, the disciples aren't able to see that. They're unprepared. Where are you unprepared? What are your blind spots? Where do you tend to wonder about the presence and compassion and power of your Redeemer? Where are you reluctant to... Uh, trust his ability to guide you or to provide for you or to meet your need? Where are you still wondering in blindness, asking questions that your faith ought to have give, given you the answer for by now? If we're humble and honest, we are far more like the disciples than we care to acknowledge. Now, I wish I could tell you it, was, it wasn't true for me. I've seen, you know, I, I love saying God's calling card is faithfulness. You've heard me say that. God's calling card is faithfulness. When you try God. One of the things you're going to find, without fail, you're going to find that his business card says faithfulness. He's going to be true to you. I've seen it time and time and time again. And yet, in the stresses and pressures of life, throw me into a crucible, and I forget that he's faithful. We, our church is on the, in the process of trans, transitioning our, our governance, and our uh, selection team has been working, our governance selection team has been working for quite some time, um, praying for God to raise up elders uh, and women for, godly women for our women's team, and um, 
kind of somewhere in the process, we kind of hit a bump in the road, and, and uh, I was crestfallen. Because I was thinking to myself, man, I, Lord, I was, really want, I was really counting on this. I'm really, really looking for some shepherding help. And it took me about two days of sulking before the Lord finally got a hold of me. And, and what he said to me, not audibly, but what, what I heard in my heart was, uh, did you want what you wanted or do you want what I want? And I just remembered my place. I'm not God. I want to see him at work in our midst. I want you to want to see him at work in our midst. And if that's going to happen, then like the disciples, we have to come to the place where what we say we believe kicks in just as soon as life gets tough. And with resoluteness, we defy the world around us and say, my God will come through. His calling card is faithfulness. Well, it hasn't happened for the disciples yet. And while Mark uh, in this story is going to demonstrate why the bread of the gospel is not just for the children, it's also for, uh, the crumbs are also for the Gentiles, for you and me. Uh, he uses this actually to set up the, the next two sections that follow, beginning in verse 11, the confrontation. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking him from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. So uh, in this particular section, we see a demand for a sign from the willfully blind. Now Jesus has just rebuked the disciples. It's like, what, you don't, you don't understand that I can do this again and again and again? Now uh, he's approached by the Pharisees, and they too have a problem with this idea of spiritual vision or spiritual sight. They have blind spots, and they ask for a sign. This is not the, the Greek word for a miracle, uh, although Jesus has been doing those nonstop. The, the word uh, used here is, 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 is not about a readiness to be convinced. It, it's about a commitment to reject what's already been given. See, they're asking Jesus for something that he's actually been doing for a long time. They've just been ignoring it. They don't want to see it. They've aligned themselves against him. They choose to delegitimize his power. They re reject his trustworthiness uh, in his character and the, the authority that happens behind what he's done. Uh, in fact, it's not that they dis disbelieve that he's doing miracles. They just accuse him of doing his miracles from a source that's evil, that his power actually comes from Satan. And so they come to Jesus and say, well, hey, we want you to give us a sign, just do something to prove to us that you are who you say you are. And Jesus sighs, and the sigh there is a groan. It's, it's dismay. It's despair. Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus announces the kingdom, he says, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. It doesn't say ask for a sign. It says repent and believe. Listen, if you don't have a relationship with God and you're holding out, you, you, you just want him to write on the wall. You just want him to prove to you. I'm telling you, he's done everything he has to do to convince you that he is God. No sign is going to be given. He is the sign. Uh, he Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance, the exact imprint of God the Father. That They didn't need anything else except for just to see what was in front of them, but they didn't have eyes to see. 
In the feeding of the 5,000, John actually names that miracle as a sign. In fact, John uh, goes even further uh, in, uh, with the crowd as they pursue Christ and they want to make him their king. Jesus says, you have eaten the bread, but you haven't seen the sign. And then he says, Jesus, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Listen, you have a blind spot, maybe more than one. You'll have them over the course of your life. And, and John would suggest to you that Jesus is the bread in your blind spot. He's trying to get your attention to recognize your great need for him. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I am the sign. Like, it's not about the stuff I do. It's me. It's God incarnate. Come to his own creation to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I am the presence and the compassion and the love and the power of God working in your midst, and you cannot recognize it. Nothing will satisfy you. And so with a deep sigh, because he has harnessed the forces of nature, he's done what no man can do by the spoken word of his mouth. He is the one who created all things. And yet, because of their rejection, Jesus is done. He won't make any more attempts to reach the Pharisees. The Pharisees represent the first kind of spiritual blindness. They are willfully blind. They had a hand in their own rejection. They refused to be open-minded. They chose the path they were on, and Jesus was no longer going to pursue them. They had chosen to be enemies of Christ. And in the parallel passage in Matthew, Jesus expounded on their willful blindness by saying, when it is evening... You say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And do you know what the sign of Jonah is? As Jonah was three days in the belly of the well... So the Son of Man will be three days in the tomb, and then he will arise. And they couldn't see it because they were spiritually blind. Willful blindness stems from a hard heart. Listen, you, 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 may, you may be on the fence on Christianity. Uh, you may have heard the story over and over again, but you still like being in charge of your own life. You still like calling your own shots. You don't mind coming to church and having the appearance of a relationship, but you're not about to surrender your life. You should know that if you consider, continue down the path of willful blindness, it will lead to a hard heart. And at some point, in the same way that Jesus turned from the Pharisees, it could become too late for you. Willful blindness only leads you away from God. So Jesus reaches a breaking point. He emphatically tells them no sign will be given. And then he jumps in a boat and leaves them to the other side. So the disciples are also blind. And this is where the third section comes in. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. I love, the, I love this, this, this inside baseball. This is a commentary note from Mark just kind of setting up, you know, uh, what's about to happen. They only have one loaf of bread. Never mind that they're with a guy who's fed over 10,000 people with a few loaves, but they only have one loaf of bread. Verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
So Jesus is trying uh, to use a bread as a word picture. It goes back to the feeding of the, of the 5,000, and, and now he's, he's dealt with the rejection or the blindness of the Pharisees, uh, and he wants to teach the disciples. He wants them uh, to get it. So he issues a caution and a concern for the willing but still blind. This is different from being willfully blind. To be willfully blind is just turning a blind eye. It's just I, I, I refuse to look at that. But that's not who the disciples are. They've, they've been following. They, they left their livelihoods. They're, they're grappling at every turn to try to get it. And so Jesus is using uh, this word picture about bread. And he's talking about leaven or, or yeast. And he's talking about how infectious and continuous yeast will spread through the whole. He's saying, be very careful. Be very aware. Be very cautious. Be concerned about the infectious influence of religious thought that doesn't square with the truth. The Pharisees had created a whole level of externalism that they thought if they just performed religiously, that it had some kind of bearing on their heart. Listen, coming to church is valuable. It's meaningful. It's, we, we, ought, we ought not miss it if, if possible. Nobody has perfect attendance, but there's a reason for us to being here. Giving, investing in the Lord's work is incredibly important. It's one of the ways that we store up treasures in heaven and not, not just on earth where we're not taking anything with us. All these things are important, but what we do externally does not change our hearts. And Jesus is just saying, don't be deceived by the Pharisees. I know they look the part. I know they act like they've got it together. But that leaven, twisting the truth, is just going to continue to spread. It's not going to make them righteous. It's just going to perpetuate their corruption. And with Herod, the Herod is the same thing. Herod is the person who, whose immoral behavior is covered up by his prideful ego and his power, the way the world works. So you've got religious thought, man-made man or, or works righteousness, uh, and then you've got just the way the world works, where you just get enough power, enough prestige, and you can make things happen for yourself. Jesus says if, if you buy into that kind of thinking, it will consume you. It will just continue to spread. So the yeast is misunderstanding or disbelief. And failure to understand or come to faith is what leads to a hard heart. And so Jesus is saying, don't go down the path of the willfully um, disobedient, of, of the willfully blind. You're blind, but right now you're willing. So he's saying, remember, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus is persevering with the disciples at this point, and this ought to give us great encouragement because where he walked away from the Pharisees, uh, he's still uh, loving the disciples, he's uh, long-suffering with them, he's trying to get them to understand that God will settle for nothing less than their hearts. He doesn't want your performance. He doesn't want what you can do for him. He doesn't need what we can do for him. He's after our hearts. And this is why after all of these experiences the disciples have had, Jesus is still trying to get them to see. He wants them to have sight and understanding and the faith that flows out of that. True godliness is always a godliness of the heart. Do you have eyes to see that nothing you do by way of performance is an accurate barometer of your spirituality? Nothing you do actually can, says anything about who you are inwardly. Now, it can testify, our, our good works that we were created for in Christ Jesus can testify about our faith, but we should never rely on that. It should be about our hearts and giving our hearts to Him. We have a subtle temptation to want to twist the truth. 
we pick and choose out of the Bible what we want to hear from God and what we don't like. Jesus is trying to get the disciples and he's trying to get you and I to the point where we recognize how desperately we need him and how much we can trust him. So verse 16, uh, verse 16 says, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus being aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like you've got a loaf. Like if, if all you had was the bag with the two heels left in it, I can work with that. Uh, it doesn't take much for, for Jesus to fix the problem. And so he, he asked them a series of penetrating questions uh, just to try to get through to them. Verse 17, and Jesus said, uh, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the fi fed the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of, of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? What is it that Jesus would, would ask you about today? Do you not understand yet? Notice the contrast here because the Pharisees are, are willfully blind. They've chosen it. But the disciples are, are just willing but blind. And there is a difference. The disciples have already demonstrated uh, how uh, their, their commitment to follow Jesus. They just haven't yet come to the place of resolute, confident trust in him. They are his mathetes, his learners, but they still have learning yet to do. And I would suggest to you, no matter when you came to Christ, it could have been a long time, it could have been a short time ago, uh, as long as you're living, you will still have yet more to learn from Jesus. This is why we must continue to be his disciples. This is why the offer that Jesus is making to us is that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because the process of gaining, or because gaining our uh, spiritual sight is a process and not about an event. Remembering, uh, in addition to understanding and seeing and hearing, it's all an essential part of the process of a growing faith. The Pharisees are willfully blind. They simply cannot grow because they've outright rejected him. But we're going to see that the, the disciples are about, they're on the verge of getting it. Seeing is a process. And so in the transition to the fourth section, uh, the summary event, it's not accidental that Mark places this here because the healing of the blind man uh, follows the preceding two stories. Verse 22, and they came to Bethesda, uh, Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes uh, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, we're going to come back to this passage next week because it pivots into the disciples' aha moment. But we have seen the, the willful blindness of the Pharisees. We've seen that the disciples, though willing, are still blind. And then Jesus is going to heal someone who can't see. 
So there's two, kinds of, uh, there's two kinds of blindness, but there's only one cure, and the cure is Jesus. And his healing of this blind man is very similar to the, the deaf mute that we saw last week. He takes him aside so that it's not public. It's not about embarrassing him. It's about treating him uh, as a, va- a valuable person. And then the physicality, we may not get it. I'm not, I'm not going to suggest we ought to go around spitting in each other's eye. But Jesus spits in his eyes because that was something he would understand He would understand that it was about his eyes. And then this is the only miracle that is incomplete. Jesus asked him the question. It's a two-step miracle. And he asked them the question, uh, do you see? And it demonstrates for the disciples that that healing, that recovering of our sight, that forgiveness and walking with the Lord uh, is a continual process. It's It's not one and done. It's something that we have to do every day if we want to become the people that God has called us to be. The man responds saying, uh, in effect, I can see stuff. We know that he has seen before because he recognizes what men are, but they still look blurry. They look like trees. And so Jesus touches him again and heals him completely. And there are two different Greek words there. And, and this, this underscores the importance of continuing with Jesus. And the point I want to end with is just that the wonder of receiving spiritual sight is a grace that is bound up in the ongoing work of Jesus' redemption and restoration of our hearts and our lives. The the disciples were uh, episodic. They saw Jesus work in an instance, and they couldn't make the connection to the next instance or the next instance. The The truth is, we need Jesus just as much today as the day we met him. We need him to continue touching us. This is what they're supposed to get from the healing of the blind man. So Jesus... Was it that Jesus didn't have enough stuff to get it done the first time? No. This is a God who can speak and makes things happen. He he did what he did for the sake of the disciples. He wanted them to understand that understanding must lead to faith. And faith is only operative as we remember. And we carry those remembrances with us into the next circumstance where we trust again. And this is the way that our faith grows. 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever you know about Jesus today, you don't know enough. There are still days ahead of you. You don't know what's coming. We desperately need to stick close to Jesus so that we can continue to receive the second touches. We, We need him to help us understand. We need him to help us see. I was nine years old, October the 20th, 1975, when I'd had a bad year in school. I didn't really have an incredible rap sheet of sin, but I got sent to the principal's office for shooting quarters, which was in effect gambling. That was wrong. Uh, And I had hung out with some guys where I learned to, as I told my mom in confession, I learned to curse like a sailor at nine years old. And I got convicted in my heart, and I went to my mom and said, Mom, there's, mom, there's something wrong with me, something wrong inside. And my mom was discerning, and so she took me to her room, and she opened up the Bible, and she shared with me a, a verse uh, that she had shared with me many times before, John three sixteen, 16, uh, the verse you see at pretty much every professional football game in the end zone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It always comes out in the KJV. Um, And I understood enough to know that whatever was wrong inside of me, God wanted to fix. 
and that he had given his son to make that happen. That when Jesus was dying, he was dying to pay for my cursing. He was dying to pay for my gambling. I had no idea the kind of sins that would follow, graduate level stuff. He was dying for all of that. In his grace, I knew just enough to commit my life to him. I certainly didn't know what I know today. This is why when we are given the grace of some sight, of some understanding, we have to embrace it and we have to walk with it. And then he's going to give us a little more grace. And over time, he's going to give us a little more grace. And the more that we walk with him, the more that we will understand and the more that we will see and the more that our faith will be deepened for whatever comes next. It's a process of walking with him. But we can dig our heels in and we can say this far, no further. I won't, I won't do that. I'm not going there. And if we persist in that, our hearts will grow cold. What Jesus wants for you and I is the same thing that he wants for the disciples is that they would see and understand and that they would trust him with what they yet don't understand, with what they yet can't see. The good news for you and I is that for those who know the Lord Jesus, any confusion that we might have, any lack of answers, any lack of understanding is just temporary, like the disciples' blindness. Jesus is about to fix it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. This is the faith that God is calling us to. A resolute trust in Jesus, the Messiah, my Savior and Lord. I don't just embrace him as my Savior. I know that he wants my heart. He wants to be the king over me. He is my Lord. I am his slave, willingly. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christ follower who's been forgiven of his sin. I've been saved to the uttermost, and I'm still walking it out. I'm still trying to understand all that it means for me, but I trust him implicitly. This is the kind of Christian that our world needs to see. Christians who are willing to lay it on the line the way the disciples are going to. Everyone save Judas will give their life and sacrifice um, for the Lord. John lives and dies of old age, but not before he's attempted, they attempt to boil him in oil. Every disciple save Judas. Why? Because they finally could understand and see who Jesus was. And he was worth everything. Paul says, I consider everything rubbish that I may know him and attain to the, his, the power of his resurrection. Spiritual understanding doesn't come instantaneously, but gradually. Like the blind man and the disciples, we need those second touches from Jesus if we're going to recognize what are our blind spots. If we are beginning to understand what Jesus' mission is all about, uh, so as to make it the foundation of our faith and hope, do we understand what he is doing right now? Not only in our own lives, uh, but in our world. Do you recognize the blind spots that still exist in your own life? Where is it that you need the touch of Jesus to restore your sight? What in you right now would make Jesus sigh deeply? Don't you understand yet? Listen, we're all in the same boat, as it were. The good news is we have a compassionate Savior who longs to help us see 
and understand and live in light of his goodness over us. So let our prayer be, Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gift of a Savior uh, who is long-suffering and compassionate. That long before you were ever uh, to the point of paying the price for our sin, Lord Jesus, you were just trying to get people to see that God is good, that he loves us, that he's made a way whereby we can be forgiven for our sins and we can walk in victory and we can invest ourselves in the eternal things that we will hear one day, oh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And for the person, Father, here today who's not made that decision, who can't say that they, they remember uh, or that they understand, they don't, they don't know you in that way, I pray, Father, that you would protect them from the path of the Pharisees, that they would not continue to willfully walk in blindness, that they would understand, as Jesus underscored for us in this passage today, that that, that only leads to a hard heart, and a hard heart lives in rejection to a God who loves them. I pray that they would turn to you, and like the disciples, and like so many of us, in the course of our lives, they would come to understand who you are, your faithfulness, your reliability, and that our faith would be continually deepened as we trust you, as we have eyes to see, and we see, and we respond. We pray you would do that for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me? Uh, I, I've always, in, uh, part of my, one of my, my love language is words, and so if you haven't ever received a note from me, that's probably just a matter of time, because um, I like uh, sending words, and one of the uh, prayers I often pray for you um, when I'm thinking about you personally, or writing you a note personally, or just praying for our congregation, is the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and I want to end with that this morning. Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Brothers and sisters, we have the answer the world is dying to hear. As I said last week, let's begin by taking our medicine. Let's give ourselves without reservation to him that we might be of some redemptive help to others around us. God bless you. You're dismissed.